Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to another week of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge, and this week is not going to be as great an episode because I don't have Shelly, but I have a fantastic guest that's going to make up for it. So I'd like to welcome Ira Wolf. Ira is the President and Chief Googleization Officer at Success Performance Solution. He's got a couple of titles. He is the host of Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization and is the author of one of my favorite books, Recruiting in the Age of Googleization. So Ira, it's such a pleasure to have you on for the second time. So welcome back. Hey, thanks very much, sir. It's great to see you. Great to, to be with you again. And yeah, it's, it is the second time. Last time we had Alex Murphy, so we decided to drop the dead weight and just bring on you. Hopefully Alex isn't listening, but we, we got him on our show. So Alex is fantastic. So if you're listening, I'm kidding. Ira, first of all, where are you based out of? You're in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, I live in Pennsylvania. You know, the company and where we live is on cyberspace. <laughs> we live on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, physically, I'm located in Pennsylvania. Fantastic. A lot of our audience has heard about Ira Wolf because if there's someone that is a big content provider and a subject matter expert when it comes to world recruitment, it's Ira. But for the audience that doesn't know you, who is Ira Wolf? Well, that's an interesting question. This is like a, what, a four-hour show? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a company, uh, Success Performance Solution. Who am I? You know, I'm a father, a spouse, all, all those great things. Now a grandparent, a uh, two-year-old uh, and a six-month-old running around okay, uh, every now and then, a couple times a week. So that's fun. That's a different perspective. Also got a 22-year-old and two 10-year-old wow. you know, grandchildren. So we got the spread. That's me personally. From a business side, my company, Success Performance Solutions, 26 years in business, I work pre-employment, leadership testing with companies. And then over the last couple of years, and I'm sure we'll get into this, really passionate about change. And that's really what the book was about as well. I mean, it's recruiting in the age of Googleization, but the first half of the book has nothing to do with recruitment. It was about change. It was about the future of work. And it was written before the last two years. Actually, the second edition was released in February of 2020. And then all of a sudden we had March of 2020. And a lot of what I talked about happened. And yeah. here we are, two years later, trying to still figure it out. So the first half of the book is about change. And that really is my passion. And anybody who's followed my career knows that if you want to talk about the future, I'm game. I love how you describe yourself. You describe yourself as a millennial stuck in a boomer's body. Is that right? Am I going to get right? Yeah, people have asked where I got that. I'm definitely a boomer. My body definitely feels that part chronologically. But I wrote a book, The First Geek Skeezes in Googleization, which is now my podcast, was a book in 2008. Because everybody was complaining first about Gen X and then about millennials. Now it's Gen Z. It's the historical bashing of the next generation. And when I was doing a lot of speaking and writing about that, I walked into a room and somebody said, oh, your voice is so young. We <laughs> thought you'd be much younger. Oh, and they said, it's like you're a millennial trapped in a baby boomer body. And I go, I'm going to use that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now that's almost 15 years ago, but it's stuck. And so the baby boomer body is definitely older. Uh, the millennials are now in their 40s, no longer the youngest generation. Really, it's about mindset. And that's a lot about what we'll talk about it is yeah. about people's mindset today of how that needs to change. And it really isn't chronological. I'm actually working on three projects now. I still have the current business and I'm working on two other things. That's not what you're supposed to do when all my peers are retiring 
and stopping work. And here I am almost in startup mode and really loving it. It really is about mindset. I wanted to go back to one of the things that you mentioned. So when you, you released the recruiting in the age of Googleization, it was in 2017, then you re-released in 2020 with a couple additional chapters. But a lot has happened since then. And you talked a lot about change and change that's coming. But what was the biggest change from, say, 2020, right before the pandemic, because it was February, I think you mentioned, to now we're in 2022. The world has changed when it comes to the world of work and also in recruitment. But what do you think was the biggest change from initially when you wrote that book to today? From the time I wrote the book, the biggest change, well, it's the same change, it just accelerated, was really envisioning recruitment where people went to work. They went to an office. Yeah. Prior to the pandemic, 2% of executives said that telecommuting, you know, the old term, telecommuting would be it would be possible. Yeah. 98% said wouldn't work in my business. Then March 2020 hits and all of a sudden 80% of workers are working remote. And some businesses have said That'll work. We're going to stay that way. Others have said, no, we can't wait to get back to the way it was. But the biggest shift was when I wrote the book, the mindset was I didn't even think about the workplace, really. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we knew that there'd be more, more digital communication. We knew that there'd be more video conferencing. I did talk about video conferencing and doing video interviews, but it was still that you don't have to fly someone into your office. Eventually, they'd have to come to your office, but not to do all the interviews. Then all of a sudden is what office? The office disappeared. So the biggest change between 2017 and the 2020 version was really more on recruitment marketing. There were new things that happened, new technologies, things were changing. If I was going to do a third edition of the same book, then it completely gets upended. Not much of the foundation changed because it talked about exponential change and things moving faster, reliance on technology. Okay, we're living that. that. That's not going away. But where people work is completely upended. And I was just a contributor to a white paper, came out last week at the, the beginning of March. It's called Everywhere Workplace. Yeah. And they interviewed over 6,000 people, workers, and only 13% said they want to go back to work in an office full time. Only 13%. 87% were broken up 42% and it'd be hybrid 15% wanted to be nomads. Yeah. They want to work for anywhere. They want to work from the beach. They want to work from overseas. They don't want to be pinned down in a location. And then the rest wanted to work remotely. 87% said, we're not going back to the office full time. And this is where I think we're coming to a head. I've been reading a lot on it as far as the mandates here in Canada, and I know probably in the U.S. as well, are being lifted. And the first things that the CEOs and the executives are saying is like, everyone back to the office. And I've read a bunch of different articles that are saying that a lot of employers are expecting their employees to come back in the office there seems to be a pretty big disconnect from exactly what you're telling me. Workers are like, no, I'm not going back to normal. I, I've become used to this lifestyle that I have, that I can spend more time with my kids. I'm not commuting. There's so many benefits of working from home. A lot of people are open to the hybrid model. But what I'm wondering here is with the disconnect from what employers are now saying and it's not every employer, but the latest I saw was 64% of executives are expecting their employees to come back in the office. So 
are these companies screwed? Are they going to have <laughs> extremely challenging time recruiting? What's your take there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so bizarre. And we get that question all the time. I think we saw the same study. It was either 64 or 66% of managers said they see the trend is going to be bringing back everybody in the office. Maybe part-time, you know, if they're saying, yes, we're going to require people to come back three days a week. That's also almost something that workers want. Yeah. The, the mechanics of that are weird because somebody may say, well, I'm willing to come back three days a week, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And somebody says, but I don't have childcare Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I'm going to come back Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's going to take a long time to evolve. But going back to the main question is, yeah, managers are still saying we need to bring people back. And the employees in the Everywhere Workplace survey, 25% said they would quit if they were had to go back permanently, full-time permanently. Someone asked me not recently, how much money would it take for you to go back to an office full-time? And I said, double it. That's the only way that I would even consider. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, the biggest statistic that came out of that report, and by the way, it was by a company called Avanti. I-V-A-N-T-I, a cybersecurity company. Uh, and we can talk about some of the ramifications that they got involved in. Why would they do such a survey? But what they found is, think about this, a whopping 71% of the respondents said that they would decline a promotion or a decline a raise to stay remote. Yeah. 71%. So going to what you just said is like, how much would it take? What would it do to entice me to come back? Maybe double, maybe two times pay or three times pay would change that story. But hey, we're going to give you a 25% bonus if you come back to the office. Uh, 71% said, no, we'll stay where we are. We're going to work hybrid. Yeah. And this is where a lot of employees have realized that they can be as effective, if not more effective, working from home. And a lot of organizations have seen that as well. They have seen that our productivity level has not gone down. We can execute as well. It is a different way of managing. And I think the biggest challenges are managers that are saying, hey, we need everyone back in the office. They're managing by bum at their seat compared to outcome is where a lot of organizations are struggling. Have you seen a change from organizations of how they manage employees now that they've been forced for the last two years that they're working remotely? There's a lot of talk about change and there has been improvement. There's no question in where we were two years ago to where we are now. And people either got comfortable with the technology, uh, there's better tools, or maybe we learned how to use those tools better, a uh, combination of that. I believe that over that transition, that it's definitely better, but it's evolving. It's still a far way off. And this came out indirectly in the study that I had the privilege to work with them, is the technology that was built, and this goes back even to what we just talked about with the recruiting in the age of Googleization book, the technology that was built with the assumption that people would come to work. Yeah. Collaboration tools were built that there'll be still some face-to-face. People would work on Fridays from home so they can dial in on Fridays and we can still communicate. Or if they're off sick or on a leave that we can do that. It's the same thing with recruitment technology. Recruitment or HIRS ATS systems were built with the employer in mind. They were built with the user experience exclusively based on the employer utilization. It was not built for a candidate or employee experience. So just saying, oh, we're gonna we're gonna use the same technology, but now we're gonna, gonna focus 
on candidate and employee experience, most of the things weren't built in. So now you get into the HR tech stack and you start throwing all these different components on there, it becomes like a Jenga tower and says, how, how many more pieces can we pile on before it tumbles? Yeah. Uh, or just say, hey, we got to go back to scratch. But even going back to scratch, new systems have come out. A lot of startups focused on the candidate and the employee experience. And then secondary is almost, okay, this is how it'll work for you guys who pay for it. But if if it really is designed for candidate and employee experience, then it needs a different structure. It needs different outcomes. It's a long way around your question. One is, is managing a hybrid, especially hybrid. Is if it's all remote, at least everybody's remote. If it's all in person, everybody's in person. Hybrid has a zillion permutations, variations, and it really has to be customized. It's going to constantly be evolving and changing. The technology that is out there to manage teams and projects was not built with that in mind. Some of the newer stuff was, but especially in HR. The HR technology and the performance management technology was not built with the mindset that half of our workers won't be in seats in an office. You're 100% right. So a lot of the HRS, the HR tech was built for exactly that purpose of people being in the office, being at a desk. And we've realized in the last two years that this technology is not going to work for the new candidate experience. But recruiters and HR departments and talent acquisition departments are so busy, just based on what the supply and demand is out there in a particular market, that executing, adding new technology or changing technology becomes really difficult. So we've got a lot of people just stuck in the middle. They have all crappy HR tech and they know what they need, but they can't get there. So what would be your advice for that organization that really needs to restructure the technology they're leveraging? How should they approach it? Waiting for it to... In fact, that was my article this week on my newsletter, Never Normal News. The tagline was, as soon as the pandemic passes, or as soon as the pandemic ends, we're going to have a lot of time. The reality is, then there's another crisis. We have Ukraine. We have inflation. We have gas prices. There's always going to be some other crisis. We're never going to have this time. So literally, it's whether it's carving out a team, taking 10% of your day, an hour each morning, people are going to have to focus on what needs to change. Ideally, yeah, it's scrap it and start all over. That's always the value of a startup versus a legacy system. Yeah, But we know that's not going to happen and it shouldn't happen to businesses, but you're going to have to really create a plan and it's not creating a long-term strategy. It doesn't mean you scrap everything. We still may have to put band-aids and piece things together for a little bit. But over time, it's going to collapse. And the companies that are waiting for this to pass or rationalizing that we're too small, you know, even we don't have the money, time or effort to do it. You're going to have to find at least the time and effort to identify those changes. And you you do see that, especially in the recruitment side and the retention side, more on the recruitment side, that companies are scrambling. But a lot of it's throwing money. People are still in the habit of 
if we throw more dollars, that'll solve the problem. And it takes me back to my very first book, Perfect Labor Storm, when we talked about, you know, in 20 years, we're going to have labor shortages and the numbers are against us. We're going to have demographic changes. We're going to have globalization changes. We're going to have skill gaps. We're going to have gender gaps. We're going to have generational divides. We're going to have all these things. There's not one thing that's a problem, but all these things are going to converge at one time. And that's really what happened in 2020. And then you throw a pandemic into it. The pandemic didn't cause the shortages. It didn't cause attrition. The curtain was pulled back and everybody said, well, our systems are pretty good. We've been saying it for years. You've been saying it for years. No, they're not. They're really not very good. You're just getting away with it. Yes, exactly. It's like our highway infrastructure. No, filling up the potholes doesn't fix the bridge. Uh, And eventually the bridge collapses. And that's what happened for a lot of companies. So you ask in the beginning, it's like, are these companies screwed? Yeah, there's a lot of companies that are absolutely screwed. They just won't survive. The best asset they probably had, truly an asset at this point, may be the people that they have because they can't survive. And if the people leave, then they have no assets left. They they may have a building, they have a machinery, they may have some patents and things. Uh, But the reality is if they don't have people, they have no assets. Now, I just saw this yesterday. What was it? AquiTalent? Yeah. It was, you know, acquired talent. People are literally buying companies to buy the talent. And that's where we were 20 years ago and 10 years ago. And it's back and cyclical. But the labor shortages, and I'm not an economist, but this is from some really, really smart people that I know. And they're looking at the numbers and they go, I don't care what you do for your recruitment, what technology you use. The labor shortages are here with us for a minimum of 10 years. And that's only if we are smart enough to fix it for the next decade. But for this decade, it's just not going away. If the economy is good, bad, or indifferent, there's just not going to be enough people, skilled people, qualified people to do all the jobs that need to be done. Well, the data is clearly saying that, right? Boomers are retiring. The later part of Generation X are retiring as well. And one of the things uh, I was (laughs) reading about about Gen X and they're retiring. (laughs) But what's really going to cause a shock in the system, we're already seeing it, is the, the boomers and the older Generation X were actually the builders. And the demographics of people coming into the workforce and a lot of it was just a lot of parents especially boomer parents being like you need to go to university you're not going to trade school so now we're in a position that 10 years from now we don't have enough trades people right now but we are going to be in a dire situation 10 to 15 years from now and how do we get around that like how do we start encouraging the younger people that university is not the end all but how do we get more people in trades how do we get more people in a different sector i i do believe the whole ed- education system is a little bit of a scam and how we perpetrated because Look, they're going in, especially in the U.S., coming out with 200K in debt and making 40K a desk job somewhere. It just doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable. Where I want to bring that is when it comes to that shortage, what is the answer? Is it automation? What's your take there? A friend of mine, Ed Gordon, he studied this for 50 years. He is a labor economist. And his calculation is that we will be 32 million people short by 2030. If you look at the current workforce and you say 2030, who are the people that have the skills? That 56 million people have currently have the skills that you'll need eight to 10 years out. Okay. With retraining and upskilling, if we do it aggressively and we do it correctly, and that's not happening yet, but let's say we get our act together and organizations and the government gets our acts together. 
that we can reskill and upskill 30 million people. Okay, so that's 86 million people. And we still need people that could have postgraduate or post-secondary education, uh, whatever that might be. That'll be another 10 million. That's 96 million. There's going to be 128 million jobs. There's a gap. We're going to have a lot of people that just still don't have the skills. And that's an aggressive approach to that. Now, to fill some of that gap, there will be some automation. Yeah, There's no question. But the automation that's required is going to require people that have different and better skills. So you just look at what happened with the pandemic, and now you have all these technologies to connect people. So now we need people that that can build, maintain, repair. We're talking about, okay, we're going to have robotics. We're going to have drones. We're going to have 3D printers. Okay, who's going to build, maintain, and repair those? And, And even if it becomes disposable, then we do that. And then you put it into this global war. Where are the parts coming from? We already have a supply chain problem. Yeah. So if we're going to become less dependent on China to build all this technology, all these parts, and I'm not going to get into whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but if we're going to become less dependent on the world to help build all these parts, where are we going to find the people to be able to do that? And if you need people to build that automation and to build all those parts, we need people that have a whole lot of different skills because you can't take an old mechanic. He may be able to fix, do the physical pieces of it, but it's all programming. Even when our HVAC guy comes, yeah. he has to go up and program our smart computer, our smart heat pump. Yeah. They are computer techs that just happen to be in the HVAC space. Same thing with electricians, same thing with plumbers, with smart toilets and everything that goes on. So we're going to have to have people that are a whole lot smarter. Going back to your other question, though, there's a huge drop in enrollment in colleges and universities. Yeah. And hopefully we'll see an uptick in the community colleges. At least people are going and getting those skills. Hopefully we're moving toward lifelong learning that it's okay. You don't have to go to four years of school and then you're going to have your job. You can go to two years of school, get that career, and then you're going to take some additional courses. But that completely disrupts the standard college and university model because they're trying to figure out, well, how do we get money? How do we keep all our buildings going? So they're struggling with that. I think we're going to see a shakeout in that area, what it's going to look like for tuition, you know, how people get there. It's crazy to have a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars of debt to get that. But you know, a welder, if you're a welder, minimum salary start is eighty thousand dollars. Yes. If you're a plumber, you're sixty thousand dollars. Plumbers are making hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollars of your experience or more. Truck drivers, fourteen to fifteen thousand dollars a week to drive a truck. Now everybody says, what about with autonomous vehicles? Yeah, that may solve part of the problem, but there's not enough workers to build the autonomous vehicles and service them. The automation is going to take care of part of it. But we need this shift. And now you get into looking at the world market. We're going to have to rely on immigration. Everybody agrees. Immigration is the easiest fix to our labor shortage, except it's a political nightmare Yeah, to be able to do that. In almost every developed country, immigration is now a hot topic, but it's an immediate fix. So if you're not going to have immigration, then how are you going to build these skills? And then you build alliances. But now your supply chain is dependent on other countries. So... It's complicated. I don't have an answer. Nobody does. And if anybody does, run. It's complex and it's evolving. 
But we need to start thinking that way. I know people deny climate change and they're going to deny that there's labor shortages and they're going to have these immediate fixes is that, well, if you took people off welfare, you can disband the welfare tomorrow. But I'll guarantee you the people on welfare don't have all the skills. They may be able to get a job, but they don't have the skills that we need to do what we're talking about. No, and I'm glad you brought up immigration. Automation is going to be a big part of it, but immigration is the other element, especially in North America. I don't know what the data shows, but we're going to be, to your point, in a situation 20 years from now, we just don't have enough people in the workforce. And you are right. It's a very political discussion point when it comes to immigration. But numbers are very clear that if we don't bring in people, our economy is going to be in a very tough position and the skill sets. Like, How do we change the mindset around immigration coming into the country? It's fear. Yeah, I think from for many people, it's not the end all and be all, but it is fear. It's fear that somebody's going to take my job. And the answer is something is going to take your job. Time is going to take your job. Yeah. You, Everyone is going to have to upskill. I'm an older baby boomer. You know, I'm, I would love to go back and learn new skills. I'm constantly trying to learn new skills. I'm doing that. Sometimes formally do it. Everybody's going to have to learn to either become better at what they do or learn something new and also to unlearn. And we talk a lot about that. One of the key dimensions of adaptability is not just grit and resilience. It's not just the perseverance and we're strong and we can bounce back. It's having that growth mindset, being able to think that, oh, I'm too old to learn this. I'm not smart enough to learn how to do that. I'm just not very good with computers. That's all those signs of a fixed mindset. How do we help people get beyond that? Because what it is, it's a fear of failure. It's a fear of making mistakes. They lack the confidence and the courage to be able to try something new. And even if they don't have that skill, then a lot of the companies and the organizations or their environment, their siblings, their family, doesn't support them. We need to give people the skills to be able to learn and unlearn. But we also need to change the environments. You know, on the short term, and there's a societal aspect to this. What do we do with all these people who are out of work? Yeah, And unskilled. We can spend days and days talking about that. From a company, from a business, something practical, companies are going to have to take it upon themselves to upskill and reskill. But it's not just saying, hey, we just signed the contract and here's an online training program, or we're going to bring people in, or we're going to have weekly meetings, or we're going to give you a tuition reimbursement. The reality is it's easy to give people the, I guess, tactical type things that they need. What's really hard is changing their behavior. Yeah. And this goes back to HR. And I just was on another call earlier when we talked about, you know, what are the top challenges in HR? And what's recruitment, retention, diversity, inclusion, equity, collaboration, team building, leadership. You go down the list of what are the biggest challenges. Every one of them requires everybody from the top to the bottom to change the behavior and behavior being a mindset. If you don't change the mindset that we're going to screw up, we're going to make some mistakes, nothing changes. I don't care if you got the award for best practices in diversity. If people don't feel comfortable changing how they deal with other people, how they approach that, if they don't become more vulnerable, they don't become more transparent, more authentic, nothing changes. Yeah. You just have a new policy. In place. And yeah, you can say, yeah, we see a 7% increase. Yeah, that's not good enough when you need 90% change. How do you innovate? How do you take people that are afraid to make a suggestion? What if it doesn't work? Am I going to lose my promotion? I'm up for a raise. My boss isn't going to treat me right. 
What do my coworkers think about me? So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and keep doing the same thing I've always been doing and hope I get through the next 10 years and retire. That's going to kill companies. So the number one thing that companies need to work on is one is taking the bull by the horn, literally saying, we are going to help you learn new skills. We're going to help you upskill, reskill. We're going to do everything we can. But if they don't take the approach, then we need to also help them get over, you know, stop tripping over their own feet. Yeah. A McKinsey report came out. The number one reason for attrition is work-life balance or life work, whichever way you want to call it. So people said, hey, I'm leaving because I realized I don't want to be in the rat race. The number two reason was lack of company support, Mm. that the people don't feel that the company has my back. And the third was they didn't feel they belonged, which is team support. Yeah. So again, when we're talking about measuring things like in the adaptability quotient, we measure company support, team support, psychologically safe space. If the organizations aren't providing that, people will leave and also not come to work for you. So part of the responsibility falls on management. Part of the responsibility falls on the individuals. Individuals are going to have to accept that they need to change and upskill and reskill. And here's something interesting. Number one skill for future employability. If you ask most people, it's technology, digital skills, critical thinking, collaboration, right? You've seen those over and over again. McKinsey does a report, finds out universally the number one skill for future employability is adaptability. I mean, we're teaching it. We're trying to help people become adaptable. If you don't help people become more comfortable taking some risks, learning new things, making mistakes, innovating, getting out of their own way, we're all in, as, as I say, we're in deep shift. Yeah, I like that. You put out a couple of points and I completely agree with it. When we talk about adaptability, there's two factors, right? There's the employee or the person in the workforce and the skills that you need to be successful right now in work are changing every year and a half to two years. That pace of change is completely different to probably when you started work, right? Like you went to university, your skills that you learned in university were good for 10, 15, 20 years, and you were able to do well, but that's changed. So when we talk about being adaptable, the employees will have to take some ownership of it and really be adaptable, learn new skills, always be continuous learning. But where I think the biggest challenge is going to be for a lot of organizations is the management, right? The managers, the leaders in the organization, they have to be trained and help to be able to guide the employees to think in that mindset. And that's a big shift. That is a very big shift of how management has been handled for the last 100 years. Oh, absolutely. It's not only the strategy and the function in the organization, but what's leadership look like? And we're going through that. We're going to circle back. If you teach people how to lead Here's the tools. Everybody's remote. Here's how I'm going to function. And we didn't do a very good job at it, even when it was in person. So people want to go back to a normal, hey, when you have 70% of your workforce is disengaged, and this goes back 30 years, that's a problem. It wasn't that good before. So now's the time to change it. But you have leadership that says, we want to go back to the way it was, even if it was only mediocre at best. Now we've got this completely new workforce, and most people haven't learned how to do that, but we're getting there. But this hybrid workforce, which is really what everybody wants, companies are saying, we're willing to accept, managers are willing to accept the hybrid. Employees are demanding that there's a hybrid. Managing that's going to be way different. What's performance look like? You started talking about outcomes. 
Measuring outcomes is way different than saying, Serge, you've been a really loyal employee. Every day I come in the office early, I see you here. When I leave, you're still here. We need more people like you. And now it's like, I don't get to see what, when Serge worked. I called him in the morning and he didn't answer. He didn't respond to me on Slack for three minutes. I wonder what he was doing. You know, I get these emails from him at 11 o'clock at night. What's he doing during the day? What am I paying him for? Now we just disrupted a whole other a standard is compensation. How are people paid? And I don't have a right answer. I can argue both sides of this. The fact is that should we be paying people less who work in Omaha or Des Moines versus New York City and San Francisco for doing the same job. Some people say, yeah, I have a better lifestyle. Some people say, no, it's still my skill. It's still my expertise. The outcomes I provide you are still exactly the same. Why am I worth less to be able to do that? So the one thing that we can count on before was compensation. Yeah. And you can't count on compensation. Yeah, I don't know where I stand there. I'm I'm all over the fence as far as where you are, if you should get paid less. I think there are situations that you should and situations not. Well, let's we'll throw, add one more piece into that. Why should I have to wait two weeks to get paid? So if I'm willing to accept being paid 70% because I live in a rural area than what my counterparts get in New York and San Francisco, why do I have to wait two weeks for it? Why can't I get paid every day? If I do a job on Upwork, I can get paid. Yeah. Yeah. Why why do I have to do that? Even compensation, we're going to keep the old structure. We're just going to raise our wages and add a couple more benefits. That got thrown out because, you know, what the number one needed benefit is? Mental health needs. Yes. Yeah. It's a crisis. And people are saying, we have our EAP program. We have counseling. We just sent all our managers through an empathy course. Okay. No. People come to work, you know, now they talk about bringing your whole self, your whole body, the whole person shows to work. People have problems. They've got kid problems. They got spouse problems. They got health problems. They got parent problems. They got, they got problems and they bring them all to work. And it goes back to what we're talking about with adaptability, helping people manage their personal lives is going to become a requirement of businesses. uh, If you want good people. Otherwise, you know, look, just look at look at what happened to women in the workforce. We lost millions of women and they still can't get back to the workforce because we got crappy childcare. Um, they're not treated well. It was better for them to be at home, be the teacher, be the parent, be the spouse, be the wife, be the partner, do all these things. Um, how do you get women back in the workforce? Because women saved our workforce for 30 years yeah. <laughs> because men were dropping out like flies. How do you get them back in? And we haven't figured that out very well either. The data has shown clearly that they're not coming in the workforce at the same pace. They're actually choosing the gig economy. Flexibility to them is more important than stability in this current environment. And unfortunately, women are still the primary caregiver for children. Oh, and for the parents. For the old, exactly. Right. Shelly's the perfect example. Like she takes care of her parents and she is responsible oh, for them. Totally. We're seeing that. I do want to point out something that you said as far as maybe a little bit of frustration when it comes to outcomes, right? Because boomers or older generation X, a lot yeah, of my peers, my peers. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people that are expecting people back in the office, a lot of the younger generation is like, why do we need to go in the office? I can execute at 20 times faster than you can. They get frustrated from their leaders being like, well, you can't even create a Google deck or you don't even know how to use Slack. We're talking two different languages. They're like, I can get the work that you do half the time. There's a frustration coming back to the office. But 
I want to close off on this. If we look at what the labor data is telling us, like we were talking about the macro labor data 10, 15, 20 years from now, but thinking about 2022, what do you think companies should expect when it comes to the labor market? And like are, are recruiters going to get a little bit of relief here that the labor market is going to shift? So if you're drowning, it's 20 feet deep and you go, hey, we figured out a way to, to raise the depth to 15 feet but you don't know how to swim. It's still a problem. I don't know if that's the best analogy. Long answer short. Maybe it'll ease a little bit, but it's still going to be really bad. Yeah. There's absolutely no indication that labor shortages will go away. They're going to ebb and flow. But if anybody's thinking that it's going to go back to a cycle like it has in the past, it's, oh, we've lived through this in a year or two. Everybody who's not working is going to go back to work. Um, a, a really interesting study from Australia, uh, and it was a pretty large sample. I mean, like 10,000 students or young people, wasn't students, said that over their lifetime, they will have 17 jobs and five careers. Where we're worried now about people switching jobs, people are literally just going to switch careers. I mean, I've had two careers, maybe maybe three, depending on how you define them. Maybe that's part of my millennial and a baby boomer body. But the one or two career is out. Again, going back to this everywhere workplace, it just came out this morning too. Microsoft confirmed this as well. I believe the everywhere workplace said 45% of people between the ages of 25 and 34 expected to change jobs within the next six months and preferred to work anywhere. It's not just, I'm going to switch jobs, go down the street. I'm going to switch jobs and maybe move completely someplace else. Yeah. So mobility is something to be there. There's going to continue to be job hopping, which means that you're going to have to find people, but that's just moving people from one piece to another, that you're going to have continued openings. I sort of inferred this before. We talked about women in the workplace. This is a stat and a trend that nobody recognized except the people who tracked it for years, but it's very, very real now. In 1950, more than eight out of 10 men worked. It was like 82%. Of all males of prime working age had a job. This month, it's 62%. Not from the pandemic. In 2019, it was 62%. One out of five men eligible, and I won't say they're eligible because they're disabled, they could be older, yeah. they're unskilled. We used to have four out of five men work. Now we have three out of five men work. And the only reason that we didn't recognize that in growth spurts between 1950 and 2020 was because women came into the workforce, because there used to be 30% of women in the workplace, only three out of 10 women worked. And then in, in 2019, um, right before the pandemic, it was actually over 60% of women worked. So it doubled. So women came into the workplace, took a lot of the jobs, took a lot of the professional jobs. Men have been leaving the workplace for years. And part of it is disabilities, Part of it is unskilled. Uh, men weren't going to colleges. Now more women go to colleges. Uh, so they weren't prepared with that. More men are addicted to drugs. I mean, we're talking heavy duty drugs. Uh, there's 2 million workers in the U.S. imprisoned. Yeah. Most of them are men. So you, you took all these factors out and, okay, so now you have a workforce and there's more people, but there's a whole lot less that are actually eligible work. And now you have the barbell because you have a lot of young people that aren't ready. And then you have a growing end of a barbell of baby boomers that are retiring and aging. And not that aging is the problem. They haven't kept up with their skills. So as I said, I, I had to force my employee. I can't say forcer. I kept sending invitations to use Slack. Is it was email or calls? Yeah. I'm Slack all day for other stuff. 
So why aren't we using Slack? And now we communicate by Slack, but she's 50. So she's a Gen Xer. My peers, I've said, why don't we communicate that way? And the older boomers, I only check my email like between 12 and one every day. Okay. And then you're only going to get messages between 12 and one every day. I keep missing your messages. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's the world has changed. Amazing insights, Ira. I'm always so impressed by everything that you do. I do recommend the audience to go get the book. I didn't know you had a 2008 book. I'm sure you can still get that one on Amazon. We're um, all on Amazon. Yeah, and if you want to go back to see what, what was supposed to happen, which did, Perfect Labor Storm is the first book. And it's actually, I think it's like $2.99 now. You can buy it on. There you um, go. Go get uh, Recruiting in the Age of Googleization, and we'll wait for your next book. What is your newsletter name again? It's called Never Normal News. Never Normal. Yeah, if you're on LinkedIn, subscribe. That's where I post it. But I've also began posting it. I'll send it out. If you go to googleizationnation.com, most of it, I'll transfer over there. So that's the two best places to get communication. Perfect. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the easiest way to reach out? Simple answer is Google me. (laughs) <laughs> if you type in Ira Wolf uh, and Googleization, I'll, I'll show up. My personal website is Ira Wolf with an E, I-R-A-W-O-L-F-E.com. And the business website is SuccessPerformanceSolutions.com. Connect with me. Just reach out. Just tell them you, you listen to Recruitment Flex and Surge and you heard me. And I'll connect with you on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. Ira, this was amazing. I want to have you on the show again. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Take care. Stay safe. Take care. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.